Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. You're once, twice, three times a podcast. <laughs> and we love you. <laughs> nice, I like that. Yeah. Hello, Kevin, how are you? I'm very silly, how are you? <laughs> Equally silly. <laughs> uh, looking forward to the brevity with which we will no doubt go through this week's album. Absolutely. <laughs> and what is that album, pray tell people? Uh, so it's Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols by the Sex Pistols. Yeah, so uh, that is going up against The Clash's debut album, which I took us through a couple of weeks ago. If you have not yet listened to that episode, go and check it out. But yeah, a little bit for us to get through today, I think, Kev. Just a bit. (laughs) So this is part of our musical road trip series. It's London, obviously. Yeah, so there we go. Right, before we get into any of that, regular listeners will know that it is time for our Video Killed the Radio Star feature. And it is my pick. It is indeed. So the video I have selected for us to talk about this week is the video to Big Me. Uh, by Foo Fighters. It is a single from their first album, released in 1995. And I chose it because it is the first in a long line of comedy music videos from the Foos. And I could have chosen any of them, but I have always loved the video to Big Me. It's great. It is great. So if you haven't seen it, which I'm sure you guys have, it parodies adverts for Mentos, Mints, so the Mento slogan was the fresh maker and the various, what would you call them, vignettes throughout this yeah. video? Yeah. Are people getting into comedically sticky situations and popping a Futo, the fresh fighter, into their mouth and uh, resolving those situations in a lighthearted and whimsical manner? Can we just talk about Pat Smear's performance? <laughs> I was going to say. So I've always loved this video. The main thing being Pat Smear, and in particular, his face at the end. <laughs> when the kid comes on stage, yeah. and Pat Smear gives him that knowing look with a massive smile. It's it's one of my favourite pieces in cinema history. Like that's the thing about it, is that Pat Smear throughout it, punk legend Pat Smear, like, who'd been in like a ton of like hardcore bands and stuff. <laughs> he is playing the cheesiest uh, role ever. <laughs> Absolutely nailing it. He has some comedic chops. He really does. It's great. So, yeah, 100%. So, so, a couple of things. So, the concept for the video came from director Jesse Peretz. He had apparently originally pitched it to another band, but it was the Foos that accepted the concept. According to Dave Grohl, he said, we had some difficulty finding a treatment that would suit the song, which is short, tongue-in-cheek, ridiculously candy-coated pop tune. We didn't want to make this big, portentous portrait video. We wanted to make fun of ourselves and the song. Mission accomplished. (laughs) (laughs) There's another reason I wanted to talk about this video. Sorry. Apparently, the video's success led to many fans throwing Mentos at the band whenever they played the song live. 
<laughs> for an extended period of time, the band didn't play the song live due to this. As Grohl cited, we did stop playing that song for a while because honestly, it's like being stoned. Those little fucking things are like pebbles. They hurt. <laughs> and of course, nobody could have a uh, open cup of coke on the stage because no, exactly. it would just it would create a <laughs> volcano-like effect. Exactly, accidental bottle rockets. <laughs> so yeah. Really good video. I'm sure you've all seen it, but just in case you haven't, we will tweet out the link to it. Okay. Okay. Album of the pod. And again, my pick. What do you got for us? Well, I had something planned, which was a little bit out of left field, but is something I've been listening to quite a lot recently. Uh, And then something happened in the world of uh, music this week to lead me to select something completely different. So, the album I am selecting as Album of the Pod is one that we may well do one day on Album Clash. It's the classic Marquee Moon by Television. Is right. So, we are recording this pod uh, less than a week after Television frontman Tom Verlaine has uh, sadly passed away. And so, I wanted to give tribute to Tom Verlaine and to Television by giving a shout out to the fantastic seminal Marky Moon. I can definitely say that we will do Marky Moon at one point because yeah. it is a phenomenal album. It is a phenomenal album. A- an album and a band to which you introduced me, Kevin, and I very much thank you for that. And we both were fortunate enough to see television as well. And they were brilliant. Oh, I mean, there's there's um, rock in a solo and then there's a television gig. Yeah, exactly. And without wishing in any way, in fact, this is, this is to praise the dead, not to speak ill of them. We have spoken a number of times about curmudgeonly front men. Um, Tom Verlaine, anyone? Yeah, he could not give a, less of a shit whilst he was performing. Exactly. So yeah, love television, love Tom Verlaine, love Marky Moon. You'll already have heard it. Go listen to it. Great stuff. Um, yeah, it's a top album. Okay, Kev, shall we start talking about Nevermind the Bollocks? Okay. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to take us through the entire background of Nevermind the Bollocks in under 20 minutes. Over to you. <laughs> okay, I'm going to do my best. So... The album itself. Let's let's get that let's get that out the way before I even do the background. <laughs> so it was recorded uh, between October nineteen seventy six and August nineteen seventy seven. It's released on the twenty eighth of October nineteen seventy seven by Virgin Records in the UK. We'll get on to that, <laughs> and you know is considered one of the most influential and important albums ever recorded. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's the background. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not. <laughs> well, that's that's the factual. Stuff. Those are the facts. Yeah, go let's on. go on to the background. So, the Sex Pistols themselves evolved from a band called The Strand, which was made up of Steve Jones on vocals, Paul Cook on drums, and uh, Wally Nightingale on guitar. Florence's lad. <laughs> the band were also sometimes known as the Swankers. <laughs> of course, they were. And they regularly hung out at two clothing shops on the King's Road in Chelsea. Now, one of the shops is very important. CNA. <laughs> it was B Jam. That was a fucking frozen food store, dickhead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you could you could get jeans there. <laughs> 
Um, no, it was uh, Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood's Too Fast to Live, Too Young to Die. Um, it originally opened in 1971 as Let It Rock with a 1950s revival Teddy Boy theme. It then was renamed in 1972 to focus on another revival trend, the 50s rocker look, as associated with Marlon Brando. Never let it be said that neither Malcolm McLaren nor Vivian Westwood were people who sought to capitalise on the latest trends. Oops, did I say that out loud? As John Lydon himself observed... Malcolm and Vivian were really a pair of shysters. They would sell anything to any trend that they could grab onto. Well, once again, John Lydon proving the stopped clock theory. (laughs) So in early 74, Steve Jones asked Malcolm McLaren to manage the Strand. He paid for their first formal rehearsal space. He also um, helped in the recruitment of Glenn Matlock, um, who was an art student who occasionally worked at McLaren and Westwood's shop. In November of that year, Malcolm McLaren temporarily relocates to New York, where he was informally managing and promoting the New York Dolls for a few months. Just before he leaves, um, the shop uh, is renamed Sex, and he changes focus from retro couture to S&M-inspired anti-fashion, with a billing specialist in rubberware, glamourware, and stageware. So, inspired by the punk scene that he'd seen in New York, you know, with the Ramones, and McLaren is very influenced by what's going on in New York, so he brings it back to London, and he starts taking an interest in this band that he's supposed to be managing. So it was the rehearsals were being overseen by Bernard Rhodes, who we spoke about um, the other week in the previous week. He went goes on to manage the Clash, but soon after it, Wally uh, Florence's lad uh, gets kicked out the band, <laughs> and Steve Jones, who's never really been comfortable as a frontman, takes over his guitar duties. Problem is, there's no one to sing. <laughs> yeah. One, one could argue a problem that they never resolve. <laughs> <laughs> so Malcolm then speaks to the New York, New York Dolls, Sylv- Sylvain Sylvain, about coming over to England to front the group. That falls through. I, I wonder if anything on the album that we are going to go through actually refers to anything to do with that whole thing. And, and, <laughs> I don't know. Indeed. Supposedly, Midjo was approached <laughs> by Malcolm McLaren. Um, Ultravox Major. Yes, but refused the offer. McLaren made several calls to Richard Howe, who also turned down the offer. Hmm. So they're still looking for a singer, and Bernard Rhodes spots 19-year-old John Lydon wearing a Pink Floyd T-shirt with the words, I hate, handwritten above the band's name and holes scratched through the eyes. Hmm. So... Around this point, one of so it's never quite clear whether it's McLaren or uh, Bernard Rhodes, but one of them asks him to meet Cook and Jones in a pub um, and see how see how they they get on. So according to Jones, he came in with green hair. I thought he had a really interesting face. I liked his look. He had his "I hate Pink Floyd" T-shirt on and was held together with safety pins. John had something special, but when he started talking, he was a real arsehole, but smart. Doesn't sound like John Lydon. No, not at all. John Lydon's not smart. <laughs> when the pub closed, the group moved on to sex, where Lydon, who had given little thought to singing, was convinced to improvise along to Alice Cooper's I'm 18 on the, sh- on the shop jukebox. Though the performance drove the band members to laughter, McLaren convinced them to start rehearsing with Lydon. And basically, that's the band. 
And then they recorded their debut album, and there's nothing more to say. So they start they start playing gigs in 75. So the first gig was arranged by Matt Locke, who was studying art at St. Martin's College. Not sculpture. <laughs> and the band played at the school on the 6th of November 1975 in support of a pub rock group called Bazooka Joe. They performed basically covers. <laughs> Before the the Pistols could play a few of the original songs they had written, Bazooka Joe pulled the plugs as they saw their gear being trashed. <laughs> and a fight broke out. <laughs> so they, they perform at a variety of colleges and art schools around London and build a core group of followers who include Susie Sue, more later. I was going to say, I wonder if she'll come up again later on. And Billy Idol. Well, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So basically, there's this growing kind of group. A clique, one might say. Yeah, a clique growing uh, in, in London. And there's, there starts to be a buzz. So there's there's a review in the NME in 1976 and a brief interview where Steve Jones declares, actually, we're not into music, we're into chaos. Among those who read the article were two students at the Bolton Institute of Technology. They were Howard Devoto and Pete Shelley, Hmm. who headed down to London in search of the Sex Pistols. After chatting with McLaren at Sex, they saw the band at a couple of late February gigs. They then formed the Buscocks. Well, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The insular, almost incestuous nature, one might say, of the the mid-70s burgeoning punk scene, not just within London, but as you said, extending up to Manchester as well. It's it's incredible. Mm Mm-hmm. So the Pistols have a growing buzz around them. Uh, so they uh, debuted at uh, the 100 Club on Oxford Street on the 30th of March. On the 3rd of April, they played for the first time at the Nashville, uh, supporting the 101ers, Joe Strummer's band. And that was that was the night that Joe Strummer decided that punk rock was the future. A return gig on the 23rd of April demonstrated what is described here as the band's growing musical competence. <laughs> I, I'm not saying anything. Okay, carry on. But by all accounts, lacked a spark. Vivian Westwood provided that by instigating a fight with another audience member. Clarence and Rotten were soon involved in the melee. Court Glaser said that that fight at the Nashville, that's when all the publicity got hold of it and the violence started creeping in. I think everyone was ready to go, and we were the catalyst. Pistols were soon banned from performing at both the Nashville and the Marquee. And so they immediately cleaned up their act. (laughs) So 23rd of April, the debut album of the Ramones is released. So so we're still 18 months away from the release of Nevermind the Pollock. Yes. So, which obviously, you know, it doesn't do it doesn't do massive, but it does completely change people's uh-huh. views on what is happening, really. So they played their first gig in Manchester, arranged by Howard Devoto and Pete Shelley on the fourth of June. Sorry, I'm gonna take you back a, a minute okay. or so to you mentioned the Ramones debut being a bit of an underground hit. You could take that forward fifteen years and say that it is like something like Doolittle, which, uh, okay, it wasn't Pixie's first album, but it was an underground hit, but it became so influential to so many bands that ended up becoming what we now know as grunge, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Soundgarden, etc., etc., etc. However, 
I'll come back to where where we got to, but that's a really interesting point to make because John Lydon has repeatedly rejected any suggestion that they influence Sex Pistols. (laughs) So, the Ramones were all long-haired and of no interest to me. I didn't like their image, what they stood for, or anything about them. They were hilarious, but you can only go so far with duh, 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 duh. I've heard it. Next, move on. I mean, that is incredibly John Lydon. Yeah, it is. Because it's utter bollocks. Insufferable bollocks as well. Quite. Who's worse, Noel Gallagher or John Lydon? We'll get on to that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, go on then. So, 4th of June, they perform at the Lesser Free Free Trade Hall, which... um, A gig that no one has ever spoken about. No one has ever mentioned, but was certainly responsible for the formation of Joy Division and... The Smiths, the Stone Roses, apparently fucking everyone. Everyone, it basically set off a punk rock bomb in the city. Isn't it something like the number of people who claim to have been to that show is enough to have sold out the venue twice mm-hmm. over. And it, is, and it was not well populated. Exactly. It is widely reported that it was a sparsely attended performance. So I will roll forward a little bit. So during a return Manchester engagement on the 20th of July, the Pistols premiered a new song, uh, Anarchy in the UK. According to the uh, music historian John Savage, there seems little doubt that Lydon was being fed material by Vivian Westwood and Jamie Reid, which he then converted into his own lyrics. Wow, colour me shocked. (laughs) Uh, Steve Jones later wrote, you couldn't fault Rotten for some of the words he came up with. For a 19-year-old to write Pretty Vacant and Anarchy in the UK was pretty fucking impressive. I might not have been too bothered about lyrics before, but I knew a fucking classic when I heard one. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, no, so it, it, uh, sorry, that sounded really dismissive. Anarchy in the UK is definitely a classic. There's no denying that. Uh, but I, I personally think there is some validity in the previous quote you read around some of the material perhaps being fed to John Lydon, that's all. Yeah. So we're still only in 1976. <laughs> so they signed to EMI. I mean, I'm not even covered like there being a Barney when they went to Paris and Susie Sue was walking around with an orcs out. (laughs) Come on. Um, So they signed to EMI on a two-year contract. And (laughs) during this period... So they, sorry, they signed to EMI. Mm -hmm. Didn't you say earlier, Kevin, that the album was released on Virgin Records? It was indeed. Surely you've made some mistake. (laughs) No. uh, Funnily (laughs) enough, I haven't. The Sex Pistols... On the 1st of December, 1976, they appeared on a Thames television programme called Today, hosted by Bill Grundy. <laughs> sorry, sorry, this is my favourite bit of the story. They were please read as, the next line. As last-minute replacements for Queen, because <laughs> Freddie Mercury had a dental appointment. So, I'm really sorry. Imagine the mind that goes, well, Queen have dropped out. Oh, shit. They're a really popular rock beat combo. Who do we get in to replace them? Have we got any other bands that play guitars? Yeah, and how about these lads from London? They look like the piece. Yeah, go on, get them in. <laughs> so, live broadcast, also held by the fact that, um, well, basically the TV station gives the band and their entourage a load of ale before they go on. The Green Room. Indeed. So they go on, and before the infamous exchange... 
so Steve Steve Jones said the band had fucking spent their uh, label advance, and Johnny Rotten used the word shit, although apparently were inaudible to Bill Grundy. He then um, was speaking to Susie Sue, who declared that she'd always wanted to meet him. Bill Grundy then responds, did you really? We'll meet afterwards, shall we? This prompted the following exchange between uh, Steve Jones and the host. You dirty sod, you dirty old man. And to be fair, <laughs> he's, he's yeah. right. Yes. Well, keep going, chief. Keep going. Go on. You've got another five seconds. Say something outrageous. You dirty bastard. Go on. You dirty fucker. What a clever boy. What a fucking rotter. Right. So anyone listening to this podcast will have seen that clip multitude times. Mm-hmm. The key words in it, you've got five seconds, say something outrageous. He goads them into it. I, I'd go further. Nothing will ever convince me that that whole exchange was not orchestrated probably by Malcolm McLaren, to achieve exactly the impact that it did. Listen, I have got... We're back to QAnon conspiracy theories again. (laughs) Go back to what I said. I said it jokingly. Queen dropout, so what do you do? Oh, let's put the fucking EMI. Let's put the fucking sex pistols up there. What are you on about? You know what they're about. So, nah, like the whole thing was orchestrated to achieve what it ended up achieving the problem was for emi as i believe it got too hot even for them to manage and yeah. so they shit the bed so there's the famous daily mirror cover the filth, <laughs> the filth and the fury, and, the fury. Yeah. and there's a really there's a really great quote from steve jones steve jones it's fun, it's funny that Lydon is always the one who is quoted and all that kind of stuff but steve jones actually usually nails it to be honest I mean, it's, it's not funny that Lydon... That's his whole shtick, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, look at... Yeah, anyway, sorry. So Grundy was a big dividing line in the Sex Pistols story. Before it, we were all about the music. But from then on, it was all about the media. In some ways, it was our finest moment, but in others, it was the beginning of the end. In terms of the Sex Pistols having any kind of long-term future, this sudden acceleration was the worst thing that could possibly have happened. I still think we'd have got really big in the end without it, but the whole process would have been much slower and maybe less traumatic. I guess it was never our destiny to be a normal band who make a few albums and then fade away. Grundy was definitely the point where everybody's egos started to spin out. McLaren's probably most of all. Boom, there you go. Nails it. Mm-hmm. But the entire episode makes them household names. So they have the Anarchy Tour of the UK. They're supported by The Clash and Johnny Thunder's band, The Heartbreakers band that i quite like and um, there's loads of media coverage many of the concerts were cancelled um by organizers or local authorities and um, so of the approximately 20 scheduled gigs only seven took place <laughs> following a campaign waged in the south wales press a crowd including carol singers and a pentecostal preacher protested against a group outside a show in Caerphilly. i bet that was a lovely tuneful protest I bet it was. we don't know if there was cheese involved <laughs> Apparently, Packers at the EMI plant refused to handle the band's single. London Conservative councillor Bernard Brooke Partridge declared, most of these groups will be vastly improved by sudden death. The worst of the punk rock groups, I suppose, currently are the Sex Pistols. They are unbelievably nauseating. The antithesis of humankind. I would like to see somebody dig a very, very large, exceedingly deep hole and drop the whole bloody lot down it. You know, did he ever write under a non-de-plume for the enemy? 
go and listen to the Clash episode to understand what that joke's about. So basically, because of this entire huge panic, EMI drop them. As I said, it spiralled out of control even for them. Yeah. And Glenn Matlock also leaves at the same time. And Malcolm McLaren, being Malcolm McLaren, said that he was thrown out because he went on too long about Paul McCartney's The Beatles. It was too much. I mean, it's bollocks as well. And the fact, the so, fact so is... So as I understand it, he left the band because he thought John Lydon was a prick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, um, Glenn Matlock, later in his autobiography, described the primary impetus as his increasingly acrimonious relationship with Rotten. By his account, the rampant inflation of Rotten's ego once he'd had his name in the papers. <laughs> exactly. There's suggestions that Johnny Rotten pushed Matlock out in an effort to demonstrate his power and autonomy from McLaren. Whatever it is, basically, it actually sows the seeds of the destruction of the band because... Glenn Matlock was responsible for writing pretty much the whole album, and he's replaced by... um, The only man in London who's arguably a bigger prick than John Lydon. Yeah, so he's replaced by Johnny Rotten's friend and self-appointed Ultimate Sex Pistols fan, Sid Vicious. Now, I will talk about Sid Vicious a lot in when we go into Legacy. The one thing I really, really want to say is that I do not understand the affection that is held towards him. Not at all. And we will get on to why. I um, blame Gary Oldman. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or some twisted notion of the romantic, um, I don't know. Rock, the, the romantic, tragic rock and roll death. Yeah. But he can, he can fuck right off. So then they sign to um, A&M Records. Um, There's a press ceremony outside Buckingham Palace because of the single God Save the Queen. However, afterwards, intoxicated, they made their way round to the A&M offices. Sid Vicious smashed in a toilet bowl and cut his foot. As he trailed blood around the offices, Johnny Rotten verbally abused the staff and C. Jones got frisky with a woman in the ladies' room. A couple of days later, they got into a fight with another band at club, and one of Johnny Rotten's pals threatened the life of good friend of AM's English director. On the 16th of March, AM decided to break contract with the Pistols. 25,000 copies of the planned God Save the Queen single were virtually all destroyed. <laughs> so in May, the band signed with Virgin, their third new label in little more than a year. And McLaren had tried to, um, had basically touted them around everyone else, had failed to get a deal, had tried to get Virgin just to release God Save the Queen and not sign them up for an album so he could get a better deal. Mm-hmm. Couldn't, do, couldn't do that. So they basically had to take the Virgin deal because nobody else was going to sign them. Um, so I'm getting there. <laughs> <laughs> they started fucking recording it yet. Uh, Virgin were more than happy to release God Save the Queen as a single. Unfortunately, workers at their plant down tools in protest at the song's content. And the famous cover designed by Jamie Reid with showing the Queen with her features obscured by the song and band names in cut-out letters offended the sleeves plate makers. After much talk, production resumed and the rec- record was finally released on the 27th of May. 
it been uh, time to co- coincide with Queen Elizabeth's Silver Jubilee celebrations. Um, and after a week and a half of the record's release, it sold more than 150,000 copies. On the 7th of June, McLaren and the record label arranged to charter a private boat and have the Sex Pistols perform while sailing down the River Thames, uh, passing Westminster Pier and the Houses of Parliament. The event, a mockery of the Queen's River procession, planned for two days later, ended in chaos. Police launches forced the boat to dock and constabulary surrounded the gangplanks at the pier while the band members and their equipment were hustled down a side stairwell. McLaren, Westwood and many of the band's entourage were arrested. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I could go on and on and on because there's so much. I mean, there's Leiden posing for photographs, making a Nazi salute whilst wearing a sweater with a swastika in Norway. But basically, since uh, spring 1977, three senior Sex Pistols had been going to the to the studio periodically to lay down the tracks for the debut album. It was supposed to be called God Save the Sex Pistols, but it became never it became known during the summer as Nevermind the Bollocks. Given how incompetent Sid Vicious was, <laughs> they invited Glenn Matlock to come back uh-huh. and play on the album yeah. to do the bass parts. And he said he'd agreed to he agreed to help out, but the he, what he'd said was that I want paying up front. I don't trust you, uh, Malcolm McLaren. You're a shyster, and I ain't coming along without being paid. The money doesn't turn up, so he doesn't turn up. <laughs> and so, um, basically, Glenn Matlock is only on two of the songs on the album. Mm-hmm. And it's actually uh, Steve Jones who plays all the other bass parts on the album yep. because Sid Vicious couldn't play. Was shit. Yeah. So the... <laughs> There was a profanity case because it used the word bollocks. And so obviously when they were advertising it, London police visited the city's Virgin Records store branches and told them they faced prosecution for indecency as stipulated by the 1899 Indecent Advertisements Act if they continued to display posters of the album cover in their windows. So they were generally toned down or removed. However, on the 9th of November 1977, a Virgin record shop manager in Nottingham was arrested for displaying the record after being warned to cover up the word bollocks. There is some uh, belief that this was uh, designed as a publicity stunt by uh, Branson, who announced he would cover the manager's legal costs and hired Queen's counsel John Mortimer as defence. Bob's lad. (laughs) Or Bob's dad. So there was an obscenity case heard at Nottingham Magistrates Court and basically it gets thrown out. So, yeah, it does seem like it was an entire publicity stunt, which the police absolutely fell into. Yeah, quite. And I could go on and on and on, but I'm not going to because you've heard enough of my voice. So That's all we've got time for this week. <laughs> Kev, what's going on in Twitter? <laughs> Oh, Christ. I mean, yeah, I knew that was going to take a long time, but how could you... There's so much. <laughs> and, I've, and that's me skimming. <laughs> oh, fucking hell. Um, should we talk about how we discovered Nevermind the Okay, Bollocks? yes. So, Tim, how did you first come across uh, Nevermind the Bollocks? Okay. I probably first listened to it when I was about 16. Some of my mates were getting more into punk, uh, and this was obviously one of the first albums that, that they recommended I listen to. 
whilst I can't say that it's a favourite of mine, and it will be clear by now my opinions and Kev's opinions on certain members of the band. Um, I do own a tattered vinyl copy of this album. So, yeah, that's that's me. How about you? So it was, you know, it was a similar time to when I was getting into The Clash. Like, I was very much in a in a punk phase. I'm pretty sure there was a a virgin, ironically, a virgin megastore. Um, <laughs> two for 20, 20 quid. quid. Or, yeah. yeah. Thing. So, yeah, around that time, really. Fair enough. So, the artwork. Mm-hmm. So, designed by Jamie Reid, who had... Um, obviously done the cover for the God Save the Queen single, which is iconic. And no matter what you what you think of the album cover, you cannot deny it is an iconic album cover. It is. I mean, the note I've made is it's been replicated ad infinitum on countless posters, T-shirts, etc., etc., being sold in student union markets. Mm-hmm. It absolutely... So... I mean, you've all seen the fucking cover to Never Mind the Bollocks. Bright yellow background, pink strip across it. Right, Never Mind the Bollocks, here's a sex. So you know it. It absolutely fits the punk aesthetic. And I think Jamie Reed's artwork, I think the God Save the Queen cover's really, really good mm-hmm. as well. So it's a brilliant cover. Yeah, whatever you think about the title of the album and, and, and the publicity stunts around it, it's an iconic album cover. It's classic. Yeah, it it is a brilliant like the thing about album covers is that they are supposed to draw you in. So mm-hmm. you think of Autobahn, Nevermind. Yeah. yeah, you know you think of these classic album covers, and Nevermind the Bollocks absolutely draws you in. Yep. I whilst I prefer the Clash's cover, it would be churlish of me to say that it's the better cover because it's so iconic. Like if you asked. You know, if you did a family fortunes, you ask a hundred people, yeah, and you took away the you took away the names. You say, which, what's that album cover? Yeah, they they're gonna recognise the Sex Pistols one straight away. Yeah, hundred percent. If you if you go for this as your pointless answer, you ain't winning the prize. Absolutely not. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I agree with everything you've just said. Okay, so we finally get on to the music. Oh Jesus! Uh, so right. Just some disclosure for you guys. Obviously, I'm going to be editing and stuff. We've already been recording this episode for an hour. <laughs> he he is absolutely had to cut through loads of stuff, and it's not even waffle. We don't know that yet. I may not have been able to. Anyway, this is definitely waffle. Get on with it. Okay, so we start off with a holiday in the sun. Mm. So, if you want to get people's attention on your debut album of your already notorious band, I would suggest the sound of goose-stepping jackboots is sure as shit going to get people's attention. I would definitely say that. I mean, it's one of the most provocative openings Mm -hmm. of an album that I've ever come across. You know, so you've got the jackboots marching, then the opening lyric is, I don't want a holiday in the sun, I want to go to the new Belson. absolutely. So... I criticised the opener on The Clash for being, even for 1977, a bit derivative. Straight away here, there's an urgency and there's a vitality to the sound. The drums, the distortion on the guitar, and John Lydon's shrill, nasally lyrics. 
So bear with me here, bear with me, okay? So this possibly isn't as incendiary as my U2 comment when we are going through the clash earlier, but it's going to require a bit of connect the dots. I think one of the things this reminds me of most closely is the sound of, well, rock and roll star. The, 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 the opening of Definitely Maybe. Because both are absolute statements of intent, proclamations of self-importance. And I'm sorry, but you were not telling me that Liam Gallagher doesn't owe a debt to John Lydon for both his sound, in terms of his vocal style, and his persona. Absolutely. He is definitely. And so you mentioned Noel Gallagher earlier. So he was interviewed for a television program called When Albums Ruled the World, which was aired in uh, 2013. He said of the album's opening, uh, Holidays in the Sun, that is extremely provocative, what we can only assume is jackboots, which he followed by saying, as soon as that starts, everything that has gone before, gone on before is now deemed fucking irrelevant. He further commented, I made 10 albums, and in my mind, they don't match up to that. And I'm an arrogant bastard. I'd give them all up to have written that. I truly would. Okay. So you can see there's a clear, there is a clear yeah, There's a lineage. There is a lineage. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um. So back to the song. I think it's about the stark contrast between the decadence of West Berlin and the bleakness of East Berlin. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. It came from a trip that Leiden had had to West Berlin and yeah, saw the juxtaposition between between the two sides of the wall. Interestingly, it was the last song released as a single which had Johnny Rotten on vocals for 30 oh, years. Okay. Interesting. Uh, and hang on a second. For thirty years, mm-hmm. no. Thirty years as Sex Pistols. Ah, okay. Sorry. Okay, because I was going to say, well, even ignoring Public Image Limited, I was going to go. Uh, I'm sorry, but Open Up by Left Field came out in 1995. <laughs> okay, interesting. So, what do you think? I like it. You can't but like it. As I said, there's an urgency and there's a vitality to it. It grabs you straight away. Uh, it's very Sex Pistols. It's very John Lydon. I think some of the... I mm-hmm. think it struggles to end. It's not too long. I just think they struggle to end it in in a, in any coherent way. And so you've got the, I want to go mm-hmm. under the Berlin Wall, and you're going to go, I want to You know, it's a bit of a mess at the end. But I like it quite a bit, actually, quite a lot. Yeah, I really, I really like "Holidays in the Sun." I've always f- thought it was a great opening to the album. It's performed really well. You may not necessarily like John Lydon's vocal performance, but what he does, he does very well here. Uh, I agree, and we'll get onto that in a bit. <laughs> okay, so then we move on to bodies song itself is about a fan named Pauline and had been in a mental, mental institution and allegedly turned up at Leiden's door with an aborted fetus in a bag. Um, this a ver- Various versions of this story exist by various members of the band. There's no indication whether it's true or not. John Leiden says it is, has quoted it in his autobiography, but we know that Many of the members of this band are not um, reliable Unreliable witnesses. Yeah. What do you think? (sighs) Fuck this and fuck that. Fuck it all and fuck it all, the fucking brat. If anything just screams, look at me, 
we use swear words and, and all that. It, it's it is it's pure Malcolm McLaren. It's pure John Lydon. It's designed for maximum attention, for maximum publicity. It is designed to appeal to middle-class teenagers, and it's designed to piss off their parents. See also John Lydon wearing swastikas as fashion statements. This song, to me, is cheap, it's exploitative, and it's tawdry. Mm -hmm. It's Mm anti-women, it's Mm anti-choice, and it's not held by the fact that it's quoted or has been noted as within the best 50 conservative rock songs. All right, so let's be careful there, because we know that the, without turning this into yet another political soapbox, the conservative media are nothing if not opportunists in leaping on something and distorting its meaning to suit a an agenda, okay? So, personally, I will take that particular poll with something of a pinch of salt. However, I agree entirely with what you said about it being exploitative and it being anti-choice. Despite the fact that John Lydon has repeatedly said that the song is neither pro nor anti-abortion, to me at least, the lyrics make it very clear that the song describes the brutality of abortion and the, in inverted commas, ending of a life. Okay? So... I interpret it, just as you do, as being very much on one side of that fence, the side that I personally am not on. What I, what I will also say as well is that part of the reason I described it as cheap and tawdry is that thing that, oh, look, we're swearing. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But that's why I quoted that yeah. lyric, because it, 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 it's, it, here you go, here you go, suburbanites. It, look at what your kids are listening to. Ah. It's jarring when you hear, because because it it doesn't really come anywhere do you know what i mean it's it's not like it feels like a piece of the song it feels like you just throwing that in to make it even more shocking exactly okay i'm 41 i'm a parent of two i'm bound to say this sort of thing now genuinely genuinely guys i thought that when i was fucking 16 years of age mm-hmm. and by the time i was 16 i was regularly putting on at full volume in my bedroom Fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Killing in the name by Rage Against the Machine. So I was bang into the, this song's got swear words in it, isn't it going to piss off my parents, right? Even at that age, I saw this for what it was. A cynical attempt to raise one's profile and maximise one's revenue. Sorry, but that's what this is to me. I think we're in absolute uh, synergy here. Yeah, I I agree totally. Nasty. Na- it's a right. nasty song, right. and not because, and not because the, of the subject matter. It's a, as I say, it feels cheap. Not only yeah. because of the subject matter. It's cheap and tawdry. Yeah. I think that's that. You've hit the nail on the head. Okay. Right. Let's on. move on to no feelings. So uh, this appears to be a song about a self-centered person who cares <laughs> only about themselves. I cannot imagine where John Lydon got the inspiration to write such a song. <laughs> what do you feel about it? Right, so first thing I'll say, I I think it's actually quite impressive, his vocal on this, because he managed to sing so many lines seemingly without taking a breath. So fair play to you there, in terms of your lung capacity. I actually can't say much about this. It's not because I don't like it, it's just because if you know what the Sex Pistols sound like, and if you're listening to this clash, we're assuming you do, then you know everything there is to know about this song. And, And that is 
it's both a strength and a weakness of this album. There is virtually no diversity, no variety in the sound from song to song on this album, unlike The Clash the other week. And so if you take a purist, puritanical perspective, that's problematic because it suggests you've got a one-dimensional, unadventurous approach to writing and recording. Okay? But that's not what the Sex Pistols were about. They were never supposed to be that. It was all attitude. It was all bravado. It was all snarl and sneer and in-your-face brashness and all that stuff. And that's what this album is. And that's what this song is. If you like it, then you're going to have a great time. Personally, I think it's quite good, this song. It's nowhere near a standout, but it is a perfectly serviceable, raw punk song. That's my objective take on it. What do you think? So I think it's it's perfectly good. It has a raucous, off-kilter energy to it. I, I quite like it, but I know exactly what you're saying. That I suppose that the nature of particularly the singles from this mm-hmm. from this album have become so well known that an album track like this, you're not really learning anything new about the band. And I suppose the the difficulty that you're always going to have is that this is a band that largely is cast in aspic. Mm-hmm. The, because this is the only album they ever released, they never really got to develop. But I also would completely agree with you that there is not the sonic depth and diversity that we heard two weeks no. previously. No, indeed. So, so again, as I said, if that's what you're in it for, you're going to have a fucking great time. If you're in it for more then this probably isn't for you. I quite like it, personally. Okay. Liar. (laughs) No, I was telling the truth. Um, Okay, so I can't help but think that Liar, this is something I did talk about a couple of weeks ago, is an early demo. And actually, that early demo turned eventually into Anarchy in the UK. Not least of all, because the melody in the chorus has more than subtle hints of the chorus of Anarchy in the Mm -hmm. UK. But there's also something in the cadence of John Lydon's vocal, the tempo of the song. It just feels to me like something that developed into something else. Yet they were either pushed or they wanted to put 12 tracks on the album and this is all they had left. There's just not a lot to it. No. Everyone's trying their best, but it's not great. No. It's pure album filler. Like, as you say, that we didn't have anything else, so we just stuck it on. Nothing more to say. God save the Queen. She ain't no human being. <laughs> Who knew that the BFG would um, would influence John Lydon? Bastard. It's exactly what I was trying to say, but you made me laugh. <laughs> I, I wanted the follow-up that had Snoz Cumbers in it. <laughs> it's just going to have to go on Twitter now, and I can't say anything. It's, too... <laughs> it's not even that funny. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, um... <laughs> Why am I laughing so much? No idea. I mean, I thought it was a little bit funny. Yes, it was a quite humorous joke, <clears throat> which was obvious. Anyway, I'm sorry, guys. Right. <laughs> what is there to say about God Save the Queen that hasn't already been said? Okay. Uh, despite that, I'm still going to talk for three minutes about it. Mm-hmm. This is everything about the pistols distilled into three minutes and 20 seconds. You've got the simplicity of the chord structure. You've got the ferocity, the 
anger, the sheer fucking volume of the thing is it's absol- turned off to it is, It's fucking relentless. And lyrics like England's Dreaming, whether or not John Lydon was being fed some of these lyrics or at least themes to, to write lyrics around, whoever wrote it, whoever came up with it, it's a fucking great lyric because it speaks of the English disease that attitude that persists to this day and actually is arguably worse than ever in this day and age the obsession with a glorious past which never fucking existed in the first place Mm -hmm. where everything was golden where the benevolence of the empire spread peace and goodwill throughout the world where the working classes did as they were told for a pittance and a kick in the face and they were thankful for it it's two words that just fucking eviscerates the whole class system. Okay? For everything we've criticised the Pistols for, and we'll go on to criticise them for in the rest of this pod, God Save the Queen is a fucking magnificent piece of music. I may not love the Sex Pistols, but I love this song. Absolutely. I mean, you pointed to a two-word lyric. I'm going to point to a two-word lyric right near the end as well. No future. No future absolutely nails the the time you know the there's nothing mm-hmm. for working class kids at that time there's no future there's nothing for, for you and me england's dreaming everyone's looking at royalty and are blinded by it because there's nothing here there's nothing going on and this this song is fantastic and if it was done and i'd like i genuinely if this if this had been recorded by the clash it would have maybe a greater kudos than than it, it does now. It's it's a fantastic bit of social commentary and is unfortunately still fucking relevant. Well, as I said, exactly that. I, I agree. Whoever came up with the concept, whoever came up with the lyrics, it's a great song. Love it. Yeah. Okay. Problems. Right. Okay. So we talked about John Lydon's vocal style early on. We're six tracks in, so we're only halfway through, and his vocals are already trying my patience to quite a large degree. What I will say about this is that it showcases how good a drummer Paul Cook is, was. Mm-hmm. There's some great drum fills through this. It's a Sex Pistols song. It's fine. It does not need to be over four minutes long. So I will, unsurprisingly, <laughs> agree with you. It doesn't need to be as long as it is. I have a bit more, not necessarily fondness, but I have a bit more patience for his vocals. See, because I don't, I don't mind Public Image Limited. So well, that makes one of us, Kev. <laughs> so I have a lot more patience for his vocals than you do. I don't mind problems. I think it's got a really good energy. It's got anger to it. Personally, I I like his voice on this, but I I understand it's very much a Marmite thing. And I, I do feel that, as you said, it's a Sex Pistols song. I feel it comes together here, where it hasn't necessarily in other ones. Okay, fair enough. Uh, so you said this about one of the tracks on last week's album, that after what you've just heard, it's very meh. I, I can't, it's the same on problems here. I, I get where you're coming from there. All right, I've got nothing more to say about it. Okay, so we go on to 17. Uh, not a extension of the 80s slash 90s uh, girls uh, magazine, just 17. <laughs> Nothing to do with it. Um, 
it's this is a teenage anthem. Yeah, it really is. If I was seventeen, I'd fucking love this. You know, it is. Fuck you, my affluent parents. Because that's who this album's targeted at. You, we said the same. Well, you, in fairness, give you the credit. Said the same thing two years ago when we did Straight Out of Compton. This album's targeted at white middle class teenagers, and they're gonna love Seventeen. So fair enough. So I understand the point that you're making, and I think you're right. But I think it does very well describe the ennui, the absolute desperation of being 17 with no job and no prospects and no idea where you're going. I agree. So my flippant comments obviously gave the impression that I don't like this song. That's not the case. I do quite like this song. It's not a standout on the album for me, but I do quite like this song. And I agree. So in a similar way, but nowhere near as effectively to career opportunities. As you said, this does talk about the ennui, the frustration, the disaffection, disillusionment with one's lot in life. So I do like it, and I do give it credit for that, but it's still not a standout on the album for me. Fair enough. I don't think it is a standout, really. But, it, you know, as social commentary for the time goes, it, it does work. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we move on to Anarchy in the UK, um, a song beloved by lazy TV segment producers. <laughs> <laughs> so, can I just tell a quick story about Anarchy in the UK? Yeah, sure. <laughs> and this is genuinely true, guys. Uh, so, I was at the V99 Festival, uh, obviously, in 1999, hence the name. I-, I saw Mel C, yes, Mel C from the Spice Girls, perform a cover version of Anarchy in the UK. At V99. Well, <laughs> I don't think any of us expected that combination of words. Exactly. It was as dreadful as it sounds, and then some. I mean, oh, so we talked about a few weeks back the um, tragedy of Daphne and Celeste's set at Reading in 2000 being cut short by missiles being thrown from the crowd onto the stage. I mean, that was nothing compared to the crowd at V as well. At V, not even a proper festival. Yes, it's not even Reading, like where it gets uh, a little bit tasty. Mel C doing anarchy in the UK. How do you think that went down? I'm going to go, it didn't go down well. Not at all. It was fucking awful. Anyway, sorry about that. You go. <laughs> so, yeah, anarchy in the UK. I mean, what, what can you Again, it's... Much like God Save the Queen or Pretty Vacant when we get to that, this is iconic of the band. It's what really brought them to the attention of the public. It's a song that's absolutely synonymous with the band. And I think it's really good. Yes. It's got a really good hook. I mean, the absolute nihilism throughout it is not a belief structure that I necessarily would advocate or believe in, but as a punk ethos... um, yeah, it, it works. I agree with everything you've said, but it's in the wrong place on this album. And, and I'll explain why. So this is obviously the song that propelled them to infamy, if you want to say infamy. So why put it after God Save the Queen, which has already said everything that this song has got to say and more, 
and also with much more spite and bile and vitriol than this has. That is not to say that I don't like Anarchy in the UK. Far from it. But it's in the wrong place on the album because it, to me at least, pales in comparison to God Save the Queen. I agree with that completely. Okay, let's move on then. Okay, so we move on to Submission. We interrupt this Sex Pistols album to bring you the latest single from Sheffield indie new boys, Pulp. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest with you. When you think Sex Pistols... Okay, obviously there's the connection, which you've already talked about with sex, the, the, the Vivian Westwood, Malcolm McLaren shop, okay? But when you think the Sex Pistols, you do not automatically think about S&M and a song about S&M, despite the fact that it pretends to be about a uh, submersible marine craft. So, mm, I like it. Oh, I like it, actually. So for me, I think there's a nasty implied misogyny throughout the song, and I feel that the lyrical content is, to make a lazy trope, is sub-six form. I really, really don't like it. Okay, so uh, full disclosure, I I have to say I I haven't paid that much attention to the lyrical content of this song. And so if I've missed something, then that is remiss of me, because I don't usually do that. Um, So my apologies. What I like about it is purely in its composition and its sonic structure, not depth. (laughs) Because this is the only thing on the album that stands out as being even slightly different structurally and thematically. And so I give it quite a bit of credit for that, actually. I think it's got a decent hook to it, and it at least tries to branch out. Um, but I, as I say, I what I haven't done, uh, my apologies, is to is to analyse the lyrics. I mean, I could I could well be off base, but when I listened to it, not originally, but listened to it obviously for the clash, I just really picked up a a nasty implied misogyny that never never shook me. Okay, so and and, and this is genuinely, please, this is not to challenge you. And it is literally just coming from the position of I haven't read the lyrics, to be honest with you. And, and is there a particular lyric that exemplifies that feeling? Sorry. Yeah, it's the it's the chorus, really. The submission going down, down, dragging her down, submission. I can't tell you what I found. Yeah, okay. It doesn't take much of a leap to, to see what that is likely referring to. Mm-hmm. And it's the it's the dragging her down bit which seems particularly in poor taste. Yeah, it's the. I suppose it's the. Um, the again to use a album clash uh, favorite word. It's the juxtaposition of using the word submission with going down, dragging her down. Yeah. To me, to me, felt quite misogynistic. I could have completely misread it, but that's what I took from it. As I said, I didn't pick up on that because I didn't pay a great deal of attention to the lyric, which is on me. So. That's your reaction to it, which is entirely legitimate, and I can see where you're coming from, so fair enough. Okay, let's move on from from that to Pretty Vacant. I mean, it's got a great opening, and it's a really exciting opening as well. It is, because you've got the, the guitar to start with from Steve Jones, then the drums come in. Doom, 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 It's, yeah. So I, I spoke a lot as did you a couple of weeks ago when we went through the clash about it being the sound of disaffected youth. Well, yeah. 
Yeah, it's got angst and nihilism running right through it. So even when I was a teenager, 20 years after this song was first released, every single word of this resonated with me. So this is one I, I did pay attention to the lyrics to, which, again, that's on me. Uh, so again, I, I guess that speaks to the fact that this album was marketed at middle-class white boys, as far as I'm concerned it was anyway. This is the definitive anthem of disaffected youth. Mm-hmm. We're pretty vacant and we don't care. It is so urgent. It is so abrasive. You cannot help but sit up and take note. You, once again, I'm going to draw parallels with things like rock and roll star, things like cigarettes and alcohol. It's this is this is the anthem for a generation. Mm-hmm. And, and, and as we said, it would be remiss of us not to acknowledge Steve Jones's guitar work. Yeah, he's he's great. He's great on he it. And do you know what? Like what we've not we've not really talked a lot about the bass work. Like fair play to Steve Jones because he's great. Yes, he is. He does a great great job. Yeah, I agree with that entirely. It's an all time classic. Pretty vacant. What more can you say? Yeah, there's not there's there is nothing more to say about it. It is a classic, and there's a reason that the Sex Pistols became the standard bearers for punk mm-hmm. initially, and it's because on this album they had three absolute corkers that became punk standards. Agreed entirely. Okay, so we now move on to New York, and we've not criticised cheap and nasty lyrics at all throughout this uh, album. So you know. Are we going to be referring to an awful homophobic slur, which is uttered twice in this song? I mean, it's, again, it's cheap, it's nasty, and, you know, lyrically, there are things that are said that are absolutely deplorable. Well, so my my, my note has been, you know, the, the worst homophobic slur, the one that begins with an F, twice in this song. I'm sorry, but it was a different time. It doesn't cut it. Even then, you know exactly what it means. Mm-hmm. You know exactly the context in which it is meant on this song. Because the lyrics make it abundantly clear that it is a pejorative term. So no, fuck off. So it seems like Malcolm McLaren didn't like the New York Dolls much, despite having managed them for a period. Well, you hate the, you hate the ones that rejected you. Yeah, indeed. It's cheap. One could describe it as the world's first battle rap. <laughs> well, I mean, a a while ago we did um, a special pod on response songs. Yeah. And there is a response song to this. Oh, is there? Yes. So there is a response song. I have no idea. Like, off the top of my head, it might have been uh, Richard Hell or Johnny Thunders. Someone does a response song to this, but I can't remember. So, yes, it is the world's first battle rap then. <laughs> Okay, I would like to divorce the lyrics from the music of this song because I actually think, whilst it's not especially adventurous in terms of the tone of the album, I I do like the structure of the song, actually. I think it's a good punk standard. It's nice and simple. It's got hooks in it. It's got that raw sound. So if we could ignore the lyrics, there is at least something here that I can recognise as uh, enjoyable. So, <laughs> Mr. Lydon 
in an interview, stated that the use of the homophobic slur, he states that that's just typical British people misunderstanding. And what he was actually referring to was the uh, standard staple food of 70s Britain. Fuck off. Yeah, I know. Fuck off, lad. Yeah, I'm not even going to dignify that with anything else. Move on. Okay, let's move on because, yeah, I, like I'm not a fan. Okay, EMI. I like this. So um, I do have a quote from John Lydon about the label. So he said, EMI wanted to sign us to show what a good varied label they were, but they really were not. Well, as I said earlier, I am of the opinion that the whole Bill Grundy incident was to some degree at least engineered to create publicity. But it got out of hand even for EMI. And so they shit the bed and cut their losses before it became an unmanageable situation for them. I have no evidence to suggest that is the case other than what is in front of your eyes, which I I talked about earlier. I mean, it could have been quite so. It could have been quite easy that they just didn't know what to do with the band and wanted to find a way to get shut of them and creating a absolute firestorm. (sighs) Yes. But you'd have known by this time, if you were prepared to stick with the publicity, you were going to make millions off this band. So you you, you might be right. Maybe, maybe they didn't know what to do with them. But personally, I don't find that particularly plausible. Anyway, we are merely speculating on something that neither of us has any factual basis on which to do so. So, so yeah, let's... Um... I, I like it a lot. I think it's a really good end. Yeah, I, I like it. It's it's really angry and with good reason. Absolutely. It's really, Victor, it's like, fuck you. This industry is full of fake, sycophantic yes men. And you're all the same. I think it's a really good way to end. It's got a similar tone to it to something like Garage Land, which obviously we spoke about the mm-hmm. other week. It speaks of the cynicism of the music industry. Yeah, I like it a lot. Which one's pink? <laughs> exactly that. Which one's pink? The best example of a song in this mould. 100%. Mm-hmm. Great stuff. No, I, I agree. I think it. I think it's the vitriol in it is is great. And um, yeah, it's it's really enjoyable. It is really enjoyable. Okay, we're done. What? That was a proper roller coaster ride. Yeah, there's there's a lot going on there. So, reviews, largely, largely really positive at the time. But I'm going to go to a more contemporary review by Steve Huey in the always uh, useful All Music. So, he uh, describes, Already anthemic songs are rendered positively transcendent by Johnny Rotten's rabid, foaming delivery. I mean... That's a great way to describe his lyric. Yeah, I think rabid and rabid, foaming delivery is great. His bitterly sarcastic attacks on pretentious affectation and the very foundations of British society were all carried out in the most confrontational, impolite manner possible. Most imitators of the pistol's angry nihilism missed the point. Underneath the shock tactics and the theatrical negativity were social critiques carefully designed for maximum impact. Never mind the bollocks, perfectly articulate the frustration, rage and dissatisfaction of the British working class with the establishment. I can't argue with anything that. There's a lot to be said uh, for that there. There is. Um, and as I say, like the majority of the reviews were pretty much positive. 
And I'm aware that one critic in particular had a lot to say. say. Speaking of, a lot to be said. <laughs> what did Robert Christgau say? So, as we went through on Top Trumps the other week, Robert Christgau gave, never mind the bollocks, an A. So he obviously liked it. And he said the following. Get this straight. No matter what the sheikmongers want to believe. Yes, sheikmongers is a word he actually wrote down. To call this band dangerous is more than a suave existentialist compliment. They mean no good. It won't do to pass off Rotten's hatred and disgust as role-playing. The gusto of the performance is too convincing. Which is why this is such an impressive record. The forbidden ideas from which Rotten makes songs take on an undeniable truth value. Whether one is sympathetic, Holidays in the Sun is a hysterically frightening version of global economics, is it? Or filled with loathing, Bodies, an indictment from which Rotten doesn't altogether exclude himself, is effectively anti-abortion, anti-woman and anti-sex. Well, he's right there. These ideas must be dealt with and can be expected to affect the way fans think and behave. The chief limitation on their power is the music, which can get heavy occasionally, but the only real question is how many American kids might feel the way Rotten does, and where he and they will go next. I wonder, but I also worry. So we've praised the music as being the thing that saves much of this album from the lyrical content. Uh, Nobby thinks that that's the limitation of it. (laughs) Oh my God, that's so long. Even for him. I mean, there's nothing especially controversial in it, I suppose. And he's absolutely right in his critique of bodies. So uh, fair play to you, Nobby. Yeah, absolutely. Right, go on then, Kev. I mean, you're going to have to go some to uh to cut this legacy stuff down but uh go on try your best okay so the album's released the year after they embark on a u.s tour to capitalize upon the success and basically that tour leads to the end of the band so it already been delayed because the american authorities were a bit reluctant to um to allow people with criminal records in so it doesn't start well and several dates in the north had to be cancelled as a result. The tour was poorly planned. It was played by infighting and physically belligerent audiences. <laughs> what a phrase. Malcolm McLaren later admitted that he purposely booked redneck bars to provoke hostile situations. And boy, did that happen. But of course. Was he uh, also involved a few years previously in the organisation of security at the Altamont Free Fest? <laughs> and Sid Vicious, who is by this point heavily addicted to heroin, goes even more off the rails than he was before. So he wandered off from the Holiday Inn in Memphis early on in the tour looking for drugs. Um, he, When he was ultimately found, he received a beating from the security, te- security team hired by Warner Brothers, the American band's label. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I, I should probably feel shocked by that, but um, the idea of Sid Vicious getting a beating, I'm okay with. <laughs> He subsequently appeared with the words, give me a fix on his chest. Accounts vary as to whether the words were written or carved there. During a concert in San Antonio, Vicious called the crowd a a bunch of homophobic homophobic slayer um, before striking an audience member across the head with his bass guitar. Baton Rouge, he received simulated oral sex on stage. 
uh, later declaring, that's the kind of girl I like. Suffering from heroin, heroin withdrawal during a show in Dallas, he spat blood at a woman who had climbed on stage and punched him in the face. So, it's not going well. I mean, I'd like to meet that woman and buy her a half. <laughs> so... John Lydon uh, was suffering from flu and coughing up blood. He felt increasingly isolated from Cook and Jones and supposedly was disgusted by Sid Vicious's behaviour. Steve Jones and Paul Cook couldn't stand around being around John or Sid anymore. And so said um, you couldn't turn around for one minute without Sid starting a fight. Then on top of that, you had Rotten, who was on his own trip and basically thought he was God by that stage. On January the 14th. So bear in mind that... So we're into the 14th of January. 78. So the album's come out in 78. September. So two weeks. The tour's final date in San Francisco. <laughs> A Disillusions, Lydon introduced the band's encore, saying you'll get one number and one, num- one number only because I'm a lazy bastard. It was a cover of The Stooges' No Fun. At the end of the song, kneeling on stage, he chanted an unambiguous declaration, this is no fun, no fun, this is no fun at all. As the final cymbal crash died away, he addresses the audience directly, saying, ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Good night, before throwing down his microphone and walking off stage. (laughs) The band made their way separately to LA. McLaren, Cook and Jones prepared to fly to Rio de Janeiro for a working vacation. Uh, Vicious, increasingly in bad shape, was taken to LA by a friend who then brought him to New York, where he was immediately hospitalized. And John Lydon flew to New York, where he announced the band's breakup in a newspaper interview on the 18th of January. So we're what? We're still less than three weeks after the fucking tour started. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, virtually broke, um, he telephones Richard Branson, who agrees to pay for his flight back to London via Jamaica. In Jamaica, and this is absolutely wild. Does he meet with Sean Ryder and Bez? <laughs> Branson met with members of the band Devo and tried to install Rotten as their lead singer. <laughs> they declined this offer. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the band split up, basically. Cook, Jones and Sid Vicious uh, record with Ronnie Biggs in Rio de Janeiro, recorded the song No One Is Innocent. Of course they did. And there's also the version of My Way with um, Sid Vicious doing the vocals. McLaren tried to reconstitute the band with Vicious as the frontman, but... He was fucking shit. Well, um, in return for agreeing to record My Way, he got McLaren to sign a sheet of paper declaring that he was no longer his manager. And so he went back to New York and the band pretty much ended. Sid uh, began performing as a solo artist and then he uh, murdered Nancy Spongen, his uh, partner. And that's really what I wanted to talk about because it really does my head in. The romanticism associated with Sid Vicious, he's a murderer, he killed her and there's no getting past that. And I don't really want to talk about whatever other nonsense related to his behaviour because he's a murderer. So that's an interesting point and a good point. So we have to be honest here and say that we in the past have spoken glowingly about people with some fairly horrific crimes on their charge sheet. We've spoken with a lot of effusive praise about Phil Spector, who is also a murderer. Mm -hmm. 
And so we have to acknowledge that at times we have, we never overlook those things. Well, we hope never to overlook those things, but we separate to an extent the, and I hate this phrase, the art from the artist, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. The difference as I see it, and this perhaps is trying to justify oneself, the difference as I see it with what we speak about Phil Spector and what you've just said about Sid Vicious is that the glorification and deification of Sid Vicious is about his behavior. It's about his being a hellraiser. It's the whole hey, shit. He was punk. Exactly. It's not about the art he created because he didn't fucking create any art. Because as you said, he couldn't play. And the band got the fucking guitarist to play the bass guitar on the only album they ever did because the bassist they'd brought in was shite. So it's all about his attitude and his behavior, as you said because he was punk. So whilst it may be tenuous in some ways for us to go, well, it's okay for us to praise Phil Spector's body of work, whilst at the same time calling Sid Vicious a prick, what we're saying, I think, is we have a problem with the obsessive way that a lot of people put Sid Vicious onto a pedestal because of his behaviours, those very same behaviours, which and destructive behaviours, which led him to murder his partner. Am I wrong? No, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. The the chaos around him led to Nancy's death, and the chaos and so-called punk ethos is what people praise him for. And so you can't you can't praise him for being punk and then ignore what he did. Like it, it's okay. He was never tried. He wasn't found guilty, but there is a strong belief. That he he did it. I believe he did it. Can't slant in a dead Kev. Well, it, it, you know, you can come to your own conclusions, but as far as I'm concerned, he did murder mm-hmm. her, and that's that's all there is to it. Like, yeah, yeah. There you go. That's all she wrote. Okay, fine. So, Tim, what is your best song? What's your worst song? Okay, I'm going to do my worst song first because I. Th- think you will agree it is bodies it is just hateful the best song i mean it's a toss-up between two for me uh god save the queen it being one of them but i've got to go pretty vacant because it's just fucking brilliant and it's it's everything you want to remember about the sex pistols okay um so yeah absolutely agree bodies is a tawdry hateful piece of trash Mm -hmm. really I, I really dislike it a lot. And the best song is, so you went with one, I'm going with the other. It's God Save the Queen. It's it's great. And it also reminds me of the BFG. So, you know. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Uh, well, now it's time to score. So you this week provide the bread, the thing that binds the sandwich. Uh, so you kick us off with your review of The Clash, and then you bring us home with your review of Nevermind the Bollocks. Off you go. Okay, so it's a bloody strong debut album. There's some real high points. White Riot, career opportunities. I know you weren't keen on What's My Name. I really like it. Garage Land. You know, there's, there's some real good stuff on here. But it isn't a perfect album. It's a debut album, and it's very rare that you come across a band who get it perfect the first time. But it's a, it's a strong album as well. Whilst there are weak points to it, there's not so many going on there. 
So when I'm going to come down is, and I, I did think back to what you said in our previous clash, that we'd started scoring where anything below an eight was a poor score. It's not. It's not at all. And so I'm going to come down with a really solid seven and a half out of ten. Okay. You've said a lot of what I was going to say about The Clash. It is a debut album. It is raw. It is not the sound that they would become most renowned for, I think is what I'm trying to say. But there's so much to get into there. As I said the other week, one of the things I really like about it is that for the most part, there is breadth from track to track. There's only once or perhaps twice where things get a bit samey from track to track, if you know what I mean. And that, whilst it could be construed and, and, and in some ways does make it a little disjointed, I think it's to his great credit, actually. And, and, and as I said, shows the musical and vocal dexterity of the band at this very early stage in their career and shows how quickly they were maturing. And again, Paul Simonon hadn't picked up a bass guitar 12 months before this album was recorded. Uh, and he's one of the standout performers on this album. So, you know, yeah, you picked out loads of the standout tracks. I, I think Garage Land is, is a fucking great closer. It's a brilliant V sign. Fuck you to the critics. I don't like the opener. I think it is too derivative, even at that time. But you've got things. Well, White Riot is an absolute classic career opportunities we both talked about as being a great song there's a couple of things on there Protex Blue being one of them, London's Burning being another that promise a lot initially but don't deliver so it's getting nowhere near a 10 for me but I really like this album, I think it's got a lot to get into, I was surprised at how much I liked it actually 7 out of 10 uh, I think it's really, really good. I'm gonna, not going to give it quite as high a score as you because there are a few problems with it. But it's really good and it is very deserving of 7 out of 10. Okay, fair enough. So that's 14 and a half for The Clash. So we then move on to the Sex Pistols. What do you think? Oh, God, what do I think? Again, I almost want to divorce the music from the lyrics. I can't and I won't, but I almost want to. Musically, there's very little diversity in this album, but as I said a bit ago, that's not why you come to the Sex Pistols, okay? So I'm not going to criticise it for that. But I would acknowledge that that is strength The Clash has, which this album doesn't. It's raw, it's vital, it's urgent in tone, in content, in tempo, in all that stuff, okay? That's why it's struck a chord. That's why it's been such a lasting album. And as I always do, I take into account cultural impact. But as we've said, lyrically, I'm sorry, there are some vile lyrics on this album. And okay, I may sound like a, a middle-aged white fella. Well, I am a middle-aged white fella, sorry. <laughs> but there are some vile and hateful themes and lyrics on this album, which I cannot ignore. And we haven't ignored and we never do ignore. And there is at least one person involved in this album. I'm not counting Sid Vicious because he wasn't involved in this album. 
but certainly John Lydon and, and arguably, well, no, definitely Malcolm McLaren. So two people involved this album definitely deserve a knobhead tax, so they can both fuck off and get in the bin. All right, so that's counting against it. The Sex Pistols were always going to be a one and done band. I would argue that's exactly what they were intended to be, anyway. But anyway, there's this whole conversation we've been into there. There's a cynicism about the Sex Pistols, which I've always felt, which a lot of people disagree with me about. I think, and it's not necessarily the band members themselves. Malcolm McLaren absolutely knew what he was doing. It was maximum publicity, maximum controversy, maximum revenue. So he can fuck off. I'm beating around the bush here. I can't give this more than a 6 out of 10. And that is going to upset an awful lot of people who are listening to this podcast. I'm sorry, guys. Whilst there are some absolute belters on here, there's three all-time classics. There's a lot of chaff in here as well, and a lot of hateful shit that I just can't be arsed with. Six out of ten. Okay, so it's uh, tough to me. I mean, are you going to give it a nine? <laughs> Otherwise, it's not going to win. What do you think? <laughs> I think it's doubtful. So, it opens really strongly. Holidays in the Sun is is a, is an absolute belter of an opening. And you've got the three beer moths on there, and they're all great. There's other songs on there which are good. There's some very meh uh, album filler. And then there's at least three songs that I have severe problems with, which you know we've talked we've talked at length about, and I can't ignore that. I don't like John Lydon, the butter salesman. <laughs> I don't like Malcolm McLaren. I think he's a prick. So there is the inevitable tax that goes on that. And, you know, that's not even getting into Sid Vicious and everything, everything there. Mm -hmm. It's, it's funny that it's always considered a classic album when it, uh, it is problematic. And that's even if you like everything on there, musically it's problematic. There's, there's issues throughout so it's definitely not going to beat The Clash. I think I'm going to give it slightly higher than you. So I'm going to come down six and a half, and that's because it's got three belters, and it's also got Holidays in the Sun, which I think is a really good song. And EMI as well, to be fair. Yeah, fair But way. there's big problems with it as well. Yeah, okay. I, perhaps I've been a little harsh with six, but I certainly wouldn't have given it a seven, so... Six, no. six, so it gets 12 and a half. It's not going to win. It was, well, I mean, with you, as far as you're concerned, it was never going to fucking win against the Clash anyway. <laughs> no, it was always going to struggle to beat the Clash, but there's very good reason for that. <laughs> okay, so well done to the Clash. You have won the Clash. <laughs> You've beaten the Sex Pistols. Again, guys, look, I, I, I know we get people that listen to individual pods because they love certain bands. And I think we've tried to be objective here. There's a lot of stuff to really enjoy on Nevermind the Bollocks, but there's a lot of problems with it too. As Kev said, musically and lyrically, thematically. So if you don't agree, fair enough. Tell us we're a bunch of cunts. Don't mind that. Yeah, this, this, is, this, is, this is simply our opinion. This is how I, as a middle-aged fella, respond to it now. Yeah. I responded to it very differently when I was younger. Indeed. Indeed. But yeah, there we go. The Clash have won this album, Clash. 
So, I think we're going to pause our road trip for a bit there, aren't we? Yeah, briefly, we're taking a brief hiatus in London. Mm. And we're going to take a little bit of a left turn here, which, by the way, as a left-hander, I think is discriminatory. Um, But there you go. (laughs) No, because you are sinister. (laughs) That's actually quite literally true, if you know the etymology Mm -hmm. of the word sinister. So, I can't take offence at that. (laughs) But I should. <laughs> Etymology burn. Indeed. <laughs> anyway, so Kevin and I have been talking and we have realised that we review a lot of albums that we both really like. And therefore... We like to much. Exactly. Now, although we've been quite critical of the Sex Pistols there, so, you know. So we're basically going to do a series where we're deliberately going to pick things which we think at least one of us won't like. Whether it's to introduce some debate or whether it's to just have something that, you know, we can get our tea stuck into and go, this is Your hate listens. Exactly, hate listens. All right. So on that theme, okay, I get the first pick. And I'm going to pick a clash of a theme which we've done before of disappointing follow-up albums. All right. So we did a long, long time ago, our second ever clash, we did the second coming by the Stone Roses against Be Here Now by Oasis, which remains our lowest scoring album of all time. And Entail. And something <laughs> I didn't talk about when I did the chart show, the second coming is the lowest scoring winning album thus far on Album Clash. <laughs> <laughs> right, disappointing follow-up albums. Kev, in two weeks' time, I'm going to be taking us back to 1998, and I'm going to be taking us through Cooler Shakers' sophomore album, Peasants, Pigs, and Astronauts. <laughs> oh, dear God. And then, two weeks thereafter, I would like you, Kevin, to take us through the sophomore second album, From the Darkness, One Way Ticket to Hell and Back. Wow. <laughs> From 2005. I did not think we were going to be doing a Darkness <laughs> album on this. Well, we are. We said hate listens. Okay. Um. Well. Cooler Shaker versus the Darkness. It's the clash you've all been waiting for. My God. Like, it's going to take some... I mean, I thought that, like, getting through the, um, the Orb album <laughs> was hard work. Jesus. <laughs> I've got to go through. I've got to do background research on the second Darkness album. You do. And the legacy from that as well. <laughs> oh, dear. Something tells me that our already sparse listenership is going to take a nosedive over the next few weeks. It's going to take a hit. <laughs> yeah. But listen, we just wanted to bring in some, some variety to the show. Instead of us going, this is really good, this is really good, this is really good. I want to talk about something that's Look, shit for a bit. if you want a hit. If you want to hear people getting unnecessarily angry at people's musical expression, then this is going to be the season for you. It definitely is. Just in time for Valentine's. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I hadn't thought of that yet. Well, actually, no, it'll be launched after Valentine's Day, because anyway. Yeah. Just in time for Mother's Day. <laughs> in fact. <laughs> Right, there we go. That's what we're doing in a couple of weeks' time. Kev, I'm fucking knackered. I want to go to bed. Just get on with it. Twitter, go on. Okay. So, again, uh, as I mentioned, I was struggling for content, and then, thankfully, Florida saved me. (laughs) It's not often those words get spoken. 
Well, when it's related to really stupid things, then yes. <laughs> so, the mayor of Miami unveiled a police cruiser with images of Africa all over it to celebrate Black History Month. <laughs> like drawings of Africa, African symbols. Well, the thing is, look, if there's... There have been no black figures in American history to celebrate. So why would they not just use pictures of Africa? And putting aside the certainly not controversial concept of Black History Month <laughs> being celebrated on a police cruiser. I shouldn't laugh in light of recent revelations. Yeah. <laughs> you said Florida has saved us. And you said it was stupid. So you've made me laugh at this. It's your fault. How dare you, Kevin? Well, Trivialising something. So- <laughs> well, also, also, if you just if you just want to be entertained, just Google the words Florida man, <laughs> because you will find all kinds of stuff. Yes, indeed. Oh, brilliant. Okay, so um, whilst um, discovering how. Um, insensitive the uh, Miami uh, Police Department can be. You can also check out our Twitter at Clash Album. You can uh, check out our carefully curated content at Clash Album. Or if you uh, work for the Miami Police Department, you can send your explanation to albumclash at gmail.com. You can indeed. And for any surveillance agencies, sending us communications is a much easier way to check up on what we're doing than sending massive balloons up into the atmosphere. Civilian airship. <laughs> I would also uh, like to say how much I like my Huawei phone. <laughs> I'm saying absolutely nothing. Right. I mean, I'm confidently predicting, Kev, that by now this will have by far far exceeded our longest episode so far a good one uh, a good clash thank you very very much for listening guys thank you very much for sticking with us anyone that still isn't this far well done uh if you email us kevin will send you a medal <laughs> yeah brilliant so next time up it's cooler shaker with their second album peasants pigs and astronauts Unbelievable. You said you wanted to do hate listens. I did say I wanted to do hate listens, but I didn't think you'd... I mean, I knew you'd mentioned doing the second Cooler Shaker album, but there was no need to throw the second Darkness (laughs) album in. Well, I have done, so you live with my choice. Uh, Brilliant. Thank you very much for listening, guys. We will see those of you who can be bothered to stick with listening to the Cooler Shaker album in a couple of weeks' time. Until then, however, I have been quite ridiculously Tim. And I am absolutely furious, Kevin. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Ta-ra, bye-bye. Ta-ra, bye.